Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you happen to be in the world. Um, if you can read, you can see that my name's Louis Forney. I'm Professor of Intensive Care in the UK. And you can also see that we're joined by um, Professor Palomo, my good pal, who now lives in Melbourne. I think that's the way to put it, isn't it, Ronaldo? I can't say you're from Melbourne. That would be, you know, not a true. Now, we've got half an hour, so I could either read Ronaldo's CV, which would take about 40 minutes, or we could um, go on to some questions. But what I will say, without embarrassing him, I mean, he's Professor of Intensive Care at Melbourne and Honorary Professor at Monash, Melbourne and Sydney. And he's got a huge um, track record in intensive care um, research. And you know, he really is one of the giants that other people will stand on the shoulders of in the future. I don't know which thing Ronaldo is probably most proud of, but he is an officer of the Order of Australia, which is kind of equivalent to a knighthood in the UK, I think. So that, you know, for, I think that's quite an achievement especially considering he comes from originally heralds from the home of the European champions, which doesn't pain me because you know, my Italian blood was singing for joy. <laughs> Ronaldo, anything to say? Uh, what could I say? The Italian team hadn't lost any game for about 33 games going into the final match at Wembley. Uh, so statistically, it looked like it was going to win. Uh, but, you know, Playing the British in their home turf is always a dangerous thing to do. Um, and it was a really interesting and exciting penalty shootout. Yeah, yeah. I think um, penalty shootouts are exciting and interesting, viewed predominantly from the result. <laughs> right now, we have an array of questions um, which have already started pouring in. Now, the first question we've been asked now is, I think, slightly unfair. But anyway, it's, dear professors, so here's a, a joint one. Is therapeutic plasma exchange beneficial to critically ill COVID-19 patients? And what kind of patients would benefit from TPE? So, Well, I think if you go on the evidence, you would say that we don't know the answer to that question because there really haven't been any control trials of plasma exchange in severe COVID or even moderate COVID. And so it's impossible to make a judgment. The principles behind it though, uh, do not appear particularly strong. I mean, one of the things that we have seen in the New England in the last week is the administration of monoclonal antibodies against uh, <laughs> their spike protein. Uh, and so if the patient is making antibodies and your plasma exchange the antibodies away uh, by giving donor plasma that may or may not have been exposed to COVID, it's really difficult to understand what the mechanism of benefit might be. Yeah, I, I'm with you really. There have been you know, case reports on hyperviscosity and reducing that. And, but I'm not sure if you'll agree with me, but it, it's... The same theory holds for this as it does with any blood purification technique in some ways. We don't really know who, we don't really know when, and we don't really know how. 
<laughs> so based on that premise, would I give it to one of my relatives? Well, probably not. You know? And, um, you know, as a Lazarus theory or a treatment, then maybe. But I think that, you know, there's always the potential in our rush of enthusiasm to do more harm than good. We should remember. I agree. That. I agree. So that's our somewhat stoic view. The next question, well, I'm going to, there's a question about Sid, right, which used to be the name of my dog, for any of you who have heard me give that talk. But um, it, it's, it's a bit too detailed for a conversation that we can hold just over the net. So I think that it would be one best with a blackboard and a piece of chalk. But the next question is, what is your opinion regarding normal saline, or some of us might say abnormal saline, versus balanced crystalloids in patients undergoing kidney transplantation? Oh, okay, that's, a, that's an interesting question because it has been addressed by a trial which has just come to completion in Australia and New Zealand. And uh, it was led by Lawrence Weinberg, who's a colleague of mine. And I think they randomized about 700 kidney transplant patients. And the trial's finished, and uh, the data lock um, is coming up anytime in August. Then I think we'll have some results by the end of the year. Uh, all that we have is the, really the phase two work done by the same group that found that if you use balanced solutions in patients having cadaveric uh, kidney transplantation, as opposed to saline, you had a significant decrease in hyperkalemia and the need for rescue medications to deal with potassium levels. So that was a pilot study, it was a feasibility study to show safety and potentially some biochemical effects not showing any clinical effects because it was only about 100 patients. So, yeah, there's going to be a, a, a result, I think, by the end of the year. And so what I think is that on the basis of the evidence available at this stage, balanced solutions are preferable. Yeah, I think that would fit with what we know, right? I mean, so in my clinical practice, I use saline, but I use it when the patient needs sodium. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I don't use it when you know when they don't. So, I mean, what would be interesting, of course, is I don't know the answer to this, but the vasoconstrictive effect of chloride, whether that's blunted in the transplanted kidney. You know, so yeah, I think uh, you know, as I said, we'll have to wait for the results of, mm. of this trial. Uh, I think there is certainly a unique population with unique characteristics. And as you might know, there are two very large trials of uh, saline versus uh, plasma light. Uh, one is the basic uh, trial conducted by BrickNet in Brazil with more than 11,000 patients. And that trial is uh, only weeks away from being published in a major journal. Uh, and the second trial is Australia New Zealand, uh, also a double-blind randomized control trial called uh, PLUS, to plasma light versus saline, again in critically ill patients. And that's also just had the data lock and the data analysis, uh, which I happen to be privy to, but I can't tell you the results of. <laughs> and that's likely to be uh, 
you know, ready for submission probably in a couple of months. And uh, so I think by the end of 2021, we will have the results of two very large trials, one 11,000, one more than 5,000, and already some discussion about doing individual patient data meta-analysis in agreement between the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society and the BrickNet group. So we will have a whole of a lot of information we didn't have before, double-blind, multi-center, randomized, controlled, and that will give us um, a lot more information about uh, which fluids to choose in which populations. But none, of, but these two trials did not include, uh, they excluded uh, kidney transplant patients. So we need to have a separate answer for them because they're so unique. Yeah, it's interesting. But, you know, transplants, is, in one sense, should be included, but they're always excluded because... Of course. Because if there's of you know, a contraindication or if there's a serious adverse event, it, you know, it's traumatic, really, the, the effects. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I suppose the next question would be, we should be having this chat in six months' time, not now, given the questions we're being uh, Well, you know, uh, yeah. people cannot uh, know ahead of time yeah. that there are three trials that have come to conclusion or immediate conclusion or not data lock that are likely to come out in the next uh, six months. Uh, yeah. They, they, unless you're involved, uh, it's impossible yeah. to know that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because I, I, I knew that some of these were in the pipeline. So, right. What else have we got? Um, would a prognostic biomarker associated with monoclonal antibody treatment impact on the way sepsis is currently dealt with. So I think what this is, is a INOS marker for detecting who would be susceptible to or responsive to treatment with MABs. I suppose the answer to that is, you know, any prognostic blood biomarker that is of use will be useful, but, um, you know, the cemetery is littered with biomarkers that we've been promised. So I don't know if you've got any views on that. Look, uh, I agree with you, Louis. I think that uh, the field of biomarkers is very challenging. And really, when you look at the last uh, 50 years, I guess there are two biomarkers that stand out, uh, troponin um, and uh, uh, BNP. And uh, they are two out of literally hundreds of biomarkers that have been studied, proposed, developed, um, and uh, you know attempted to be brought into the market. And so the the competitiveness of the biomarkers space is very high, and the difficulty in demonstrating that a biomarker is associated with meaningfully different clinical outcome triggered by the response to the biomarker is particularly complex because it isn't just a biomarker level, but what the treatment is that it would trigger and whether that's developed and, and administered promptly and correctly and so on and so forth. It's a very difficult, very difficult area. Yeah, I, I think the other thing is that yeah, one of the challenges of our speciality is the heterogeneity of the people we treat. And yep. one of the major drawbacks 
for cardiologists, in my opinion, is that they only treat one thing. It's getting to the stage where, you know, they only treat one artery, let alone <laughs> one thing. And so, you know, you've got a relatively homogenous population with large numbers. And so, you know, that's the kind of population your, your biomarkers will love. Yeah, because you can yeah. do the right I, test. I, yeah. yeah, I Whereas, think that's right. And I think you're absolutely correct in that. You know, the people that are in intensive care are only there because of their physiological state, um, but their underlying illnesses are so heterogeneous yeah. that uh, developing a biomarker that encompasses a particular syndrome, when a syndrome is the expression of so many different etiologies, is extraordinarily challenging. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the other major thing is timing. You know, so. Whereas, you know, the cardiologists have the benefit of chest pain. You know, we don't have such a warning apart from, you know, in our trauma patients, I guess, and our surgical population. So yeah. I think the consensus, whoever asked that question is, yeah, we'd love biomarkers, but I think that um, it, they won't be available in our career. <laughs> you know, Ronaldo? Maybe. I, I, sadly, I must agree. Yeah. Right, so the next question is from a pal of mine. I won't embarrass him by saying it's Adrian Wong. Uh, he's asked, contrast-induced nephropathy. Is it real or something a radiologist uses to avoid CT scans? <laughs> Wonderful humour. Yeah. Um, look, I think uh, the, the tricky bit is that... Um, it's impossible to conduct a randomized controlled trial where you take people that are sick enough um, and uh, diagnostically challenged enough to require radio contrast for that diagnostic process and randomize them not to have it uh, or to have it. Uh, one could do such a study, for example, by randomizing people to have magnetic resonance imaging now of some organs, for example, you one could try and do a, a four-phase liver MRI, MRA, MRV, uh, as opposed to doing it by the administration of radio contrast. But the undertaking will be so extraordinarily costly and challenging and massive, so that we will never really be truly able to demonstrate convincingly that contrast given intravenously is. Uh, toxic in a way that is meaningful. All the people that go on to have radio contrast intravenously for, to assess for, I don't know, gut ischemia or some intra-abdominal catastrophe or some other diagnostic procedure are sick. And it's really impossible to clearly distinguish the course of their illness without contrast because we don't have the counterfactual. So you can't know. Having said all of that, having said all of that, I think that Epidemiologically, intravenous contrast is a very weak nephrotoxin, very weak. And I don't really know that I would ever worry about giving intravenous radio contrast to any of my patients in the ICU on the grounds that it might be nephrotoxic. I just wouldn't even think about it for a second. Intra-arterial may be a different kettle of fish, uh, and I think, you know, the evidence is a little bit more uh, exciting, if you wish. Um, but 
you know, it's not a common situation that from an intensive care point of view, we're faced with the decision to send or not to send somebody for an intra-arterial contrast administration. Usually it's um, something that we can't kind of stop, if you wish. Either the cardiologists are doing out there or the neurosurgeons uh, are again, trying to do something about some degree of vasospasm uh, in their cerebral circulation. So we can't control that kind of process. I think there is some greater toxicity with the intra-arterial administration, but even then I really wouldn't get too worried about, uh, about that. No, I think- So that, I don't know the answer. That's, yeah, I don't really- If you look at the older studies Ronaldo, which were, Deep yeah. field, but using the glue rather than the isosmolar contrast we use now. Yes, of course. If you look at hard endpoints like need for long-term dialysis, it was vanishingly rare. You know, so yeah. there may have been transient rises in creatinine. Yeah. May or may not have been responsible. My own view, for what it's worth, Adrian knows this, is that I say if the patient needs a CT cat scan to rule something out, they have the CT scan. But it's always worth the radiologist looking first before they give the contrast, because you might see what you're looking for with that. You know. Oh, quite, so, quite. Of course, of course, yeah. So, um, you know, in our population, I think that, you know, if you need a scan, then you get your scan. Yep, I agree. Right. So we're doing pretty well so far in terms of agreement. Right. Now, this one's from um, Thomas Wang in Taipei. There was also a buddy of mine. So, dear professors, so this is to the pair of us, Ronaldo. Very good. Well, how about your opinions for retarding AKI progression in COVID-19? That's a tough one, isn't it? Look, I, I think uh, my answer would immediately be vaccination. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, I think the other thing is, Thomas, in answer to your question, I there is very little that is different about COVID-associated AKI than sepsis-associated AKI. So if you think that the things we do ordinarily to prevent progression work, then do that. Yeah, and that's you know, my practice with probably more of a nod to anticoagulation. But you know, other than that, I don't do anything different. You know, just don't poison them and keep an eye. Yeah, we don't really have any tools that are specific or known to be effective. And I think, uh, as I said, the uh, protective effect of vaccination is what our societies should be focusing on like crazy. Um, and uh, that's challenging socially and logistically, but that's really what it's about. Yeah, I have to say, and I will say this publicly, the UK government hasn't managed this particularly well, but the vaccination bit, they got right. So that, that is true. They've been very, very effective and very fast. Yeah. Exactly. So if you're listening, Boris, you got one thing, right? Okay, so dear professors, are COVID-19 AKI patients different from other critically ill AKI patients regarding pathophysiology management strategies? Well, Again, you know, we don't really have uh, a clear understanding of the pathophysiology of sepsis and AKI in humans. It's all based on animal experimentation because it is so difficult to study the kidney in human beings. 
with COVID-19, we're you know, in an even more uncertain territory. Um, and so we have no way of being able to make any comment on that. No, and certainly if you look at biopsy studies, which are you know, vanishingly rare, but there are some biopsy studies out there. Yep, there's no there real are. surprises. There's no, yeah, there's no real surprises. And yep. of course, biopsy studies are always hamstrung by the selection criteria. Of course, because yes. Invariably, you've biopsied the person you've got no idea what's going on with. And even of then. Of course, of course. Know. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, Oh, right. This is a very interesting question. Dear professors, do you think that there is a role for doctors in curbing costs in patients with AKI? Okay, well, that's a, an interesting and provocative question. Yeah. Um, I think potentially there is a role for the collaboration between doctors and data scientists. Um, I think that uh, it's certainly my uh, growing observation in my, you know, income rich country, uh, hospitals now have electronic medical records and to really understand uh, and get a grasp uh, of the epidemiology of what's being done in terms of costs and management of AKI uh, and uh, the way in which doctors react to it and what they do in response to it you really have a massive amount of data flowing in now and doctors alone cannot extract it, condense it, format it and analyze it unless they're working with data scientists at the same time. And uh, once you can do that, then you can get a clear appreciation of the costs associated with it in a modern hospital uh, and uh, how and where the costs arise and potentially create strategies to minimize them. But my experience is that without the doctors, the data scientists don't have content expertise. And without the data scientists, the doctors don't have uh, digital expertise. So it's gotta be a team effort. Yeah, completely agree with that. I mean, the number of sessions I've chaired, which has been led by data scientists that don't get the context is significant and then, you get the worst aspect, which is the doctors that think they know a bit about data, data science and dabble. Right, we've got a few minutes left, my friend. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to take chairman's privilege here. Almost as long as we've known each other, which is a bit too long now, <laughs> we've been timing of RRT has been a big issue, right? And so now we have big studies. And I want to know, have the studies impacted on your clinical practice and how? So uh, the START AKI has clearly impacted my practice. I have uh, delayed the initiation of renal replacement therapy since the release of uh, the START AKI in a way that I had never done before. And I wait a lot longer uh, and uh, I justified that to my colleagues when I explained that the start AKI showed that in patients where there was a reasonable degree of equipoise uh, that the strategy associated with waiting would, would expose about 
30% fewer patients to renal replacement therapy, either because they got better or because they died. And, and that's to me very important, uh, at 90 days, uh, fewer people that received accelerated renal replacement therapy had recovered to renal replacement therapy independence. And uh, so you have the potential of creating uh, a group of people um, and turning them into chronic dialysis patients by exposing them to renal replacement therapy. And so we have developed what one could call dialytrauma, a little bit like ventilator-associated lung injury. We have uh, renal replacement therapy-associated kidney injury. And I think uh, I have become very conservative and I wait a lot longer and it's really impacted my practice. And it's actually impacted the practice of my colleagues, at least in my hospital. So we've become a lot more conservative. Yep. All right. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't think it's impacted mine. And that's probably because I was, despite my enthusiasm for renal replacement therapy, I was probably quite conservative. Um, okay. From the people that had taught me as a trainee coming up through and as a consultant, you know, so I... I was always taught never start renal replacement therapy on the basis of serum creatinine. Yeah, and so as a consequence, I always looked for what we would class as, you know, the tenants, the basic tenants of starting RRT before I did. So again, it was, you know, if I thought there was a need, hyperkalemia, for example, then I would do that. And I think that start AKI needs to be seen in context. And you summed it up absolutely there. That if you have equipoise over a patient, then wait. Yeah, I mean, there is no evidence for starting early. Yeah. Now, there may well be a very small group that benefit early. We don't know that yet. And we may no. in the future get that answer, but I'm you know, not sure. Now, we have a whole bunch of questions related to timing, which that was Pandora's box I shouldn't have opened, really. Um, all right. Early or late intubation in COVID, we won't go there. Early or late CRRT in COVID, we've answered that. Um, wait for how long for CRRT in COVID? So, uh, I mean, uh, my answer to that would be wait for as long as you would wait for anyone. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There is no reason to uniquely treat these people in a different way. We don't really have any data to suggest we should. Yeah. Right, so yeah, there's a question here, which is quite actually quite interesting. It's a based on dialo trauma. Um, I think someone's had to type this in a bit of a hurry, but explain the evidence and the process if it's due to an aggressive UF or drug removal. So yeah, we don't know the mechanism, but what I would say is that membranes, even though they are much more biocompatible than they were 20 years ago, certainly when I started, um, God does design us to have an extracorporeal circuit with our blood zapping through it, you know. And so I think that some people probably do get a hyperinflammatory state, which may well exacerbate the injury. Now, 
I would be interested in the STAR AKI data to know if there was more dialotrauma from intermittent treated patients than continuous, but that reflects my own bias, which is significant, but yeah, it's my own bias. I don't know, Ronaldo, you got any insights into the potential mechanisms? <laughs> yeah, look, um, there was a lot of heterogeneity of treatment in STAR AKI according to regions. And of course, there were the use of different techniques in this uh, kind of cohort. And so we need to do a lot of exploratory post hoc analysis. Um, I have a teleconference, Sean Bagshaw, next week uh, to, to discuss the way forward uh, in relation to those studies. So I think until we get a little bit more information, uh, I think uh, all of those possibilities are real. I happen to be uh, privy to some initial information about the differential regional management of fluid balance, and it was actually quite striking. So there were very uh, major differences between the fluid balance in North America, Europe versus Australia, New Zealand. So they were, there was a lot of heterogeneity of patient management, which offers a wonderful opportunity to explore uh, what particular styles of management may or may not uh, deliver in terms of renal recovery and in terms of patient outcome in the setting of uh, RT. So there's a lot, a lot of stuff there that uh, we're very keen to explore. It's been delayed by uh, COVID um, in, in Canada. It was quite, quite a dramatic uh, kind of uh, period for the Canadians and they're just coming out of it. And they, they've actually uh, uh, just, I think, overtaken the UK with vaccination. Uh, so they're doing really well. So hopefully they'll they'll be free to dedicate themselves to this kind of work. Uh, so we need more information. We really need more information and to understand why StarTech AI showed what it what it showed. Yeah. The other thing is, I mean, I showed with Nick Selby and other colleagues that even in single organ um, acute kidney injury treated with intermittent hemodialysis, that speckle tracking imaging shows significant LV dysfunction when you go That's right. Extra, extra. You, you did show that. And I think it's a concern to us. Uh, recently, we've done some pilot work on measuring the hematocrit uh, as you do in dialysis during continuous renal replacement therapy, where we generally would perceive that intravascular volume depletion would be a very uncommon phenomenon, but it's not true. And, and we found, we've done uh, about 20 patients and we found that uh, intravascular volume depletion as, as identified by changes in hematocrit is actually relatively common. And, um, you know, it's really tricky. For example, people may or may not have reflected that uh, when they try to remove fluid from patients that are critically ill, uh, capillary refill may be absolutely zero. Uh, and in fact, some of these patients have got capillary exudation. And so, for example, intervening, even with a moderate degree of uh, fluid removal in somebody who is in intensive care um, and is critically ill and septic, may be associated with no capillary refill. And then as a consequence of that, you'll have intravascular volume depletion. So we still have to learn when to start taking fluid off and when it is good to do so and when is it safe to do so. So there's a lot of stuff to be done, even in CRT, in, in that realm 
of uh, volume management? Yeah, it's so um, one of our, well, she's now a consultant colleague of mine, her MD, she was looking at the microcirculation in various patients. One of the cohorts was liver surgery, where of course the patients get desiccated. Yep. Um, it did show quite dramatic changes, but very variable. You know, so the individual's response is again, you know, something that we don't understand. Really. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it is really a case of. I know you'll agree with me on this. The more we know, the more I realise I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. Learn, the less I know. I will retire having to come to the conclusion that the only thing that I learned was that I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. Now, so so the members of the audience, if Ronaldo says that, the rest of us have got no chance. So, I mean, we're only supposed to bath half an hour. Um, there's another few questions. Do you want to run through those, Ronaldo? Are you happy or do you need to go? Okay, I'll give you five more minutes. Otherwise, um, my family will uh, come and strangle me or something. Oh, right. Yes. And, yeah. I've met his family who are delightful, but I won't want them to strangle me. <laughs> so there's one, all right, we'll finish with this. Do you give anticoagulants for all ICU patients? Well, we all give uh, venous uh, thromboprophylaxis, um, if that's what they mean. Um, so that's just standard care. Uh, it's typically with low molecular weight heparin on the basis of the PROTECT trial, which... Uh, was led by the Canadians and by Deborah Cook, showing a decrease in pulmonary embolism and safety. Um, obviously, there'll be patients where there are contraindications to that. For example, people with severe thrombocytopenia, where the risk of bleeding is significant, people with a recent intracerebral hemorrhage or traumatic brain injury, and all those people need to be considered separately. But generally, we would adhere to VT prophylaxis, as I imagine everyone would idea to yeah that's standard that's it it's all good practice yeah so that's yeah um, i mean if it's yeah. specifically or i wonder if the question was more do you give seropathic anticoagulation in covid because it was following that oh uh, no no I, we don't i don't we wouldn't uh the trials don't support it the information available does not support it and we would not yeah and we're we we're not. the same actually we did go through in the first wave Yes, I know. At the beginning, people got all worked up about it, which exactly. is fine. And, you know, we were just learning, uh, but, uh, but that's okay. But now we've got enough information that uh, standard VTE prophylaxis is necessary and desirable. But beyond that, there is no advantage from systemic anticoagulation and it's dangerous. Yeah, so I agree yeah. with that. Right, my friend, I think you're going off for your supper. I'm actually going to sit in the sunshine because unbelievably the sun is shining in England. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so, you know, the world is getting better. There we go. Very good. Stay safe, my friend. Thank you very much for joining us. I don't know when we'll meet again in person, but it can't come soon enough. Yeah, it will be wonderful. Um, looking forward to it whenever it comes. Yeah. Okay. Always good to see you, Louis. Okay, yeah. take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, okay. everyone. Bye. Okay.